Well, take your personal copy of God's Word. It's great to be able to say that. And turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. title for our sermon today in Time in the Word is Speak and Be Quiet. And that's exactly what we see happening in a very odd way in the passage before us. Mark chapter 7, Jesus has just been in the area of Tyre and is about to go 20 miles north. And we pick it up after he had cast the demon out of the little girl whose mother had come to him, a Gentile woman, and said, please, please help my my daughter. And he cast the demon out far from her physical presence. That'll be important in a few minutes. Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Again, Jesus, he went out or north from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. And they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside away from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven, with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was removed and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. And they were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes makes even the deaf to hear, and he makes the mute to speak. Everyone has thoughts about heaven. It's hard to find someone who hasn't imagined heaven. There are many fantastical versions of heaven. There are many hopeful versions of heaven. You have thoughts of heaven. I have thoughts of heaven. And so do the people of the first century. Think about this. The expectations and ideas of heaven revolve around things being made right and complete and perfect because they're not complete and not right and not perfect in this world and in our lives. You ever thought about what makes heaven so desired It is a remarkable thing that everyone wants to go to heaven and no one wants to die. Besides the fact that heaven is obviously contrasted with hell after death, 
It's the contrast of heaven to this world which makes it so pervasive and attractive. In fact, I would probably argue that in the scriptures, when you see people contemplating the afterlife, they are more comparing this world and the sufferings of it to the wonder of being released from that in heaven than most of them compare heaven to hell. Jesus helps correct that in the coming chapters, by the way. There's certainly nothing wrong with looking at our life and looking at heaven and making a comparison and a contrast. Why? We live in a world that's broken. If everything were great in this life and in this world, no one would long to go to heaven. We would just want to stay as long as we could. And ultimately, the desire for heaven is magnified because of our experiences with trials and with suffering and with sickness and with disease and ultimately with the threat and the experience of death for ourselves and those we love. This was especially true in Jesus' time. In fact, I think it was heightened and highlighted in Jesus' time. Their hope for help in this world was far more diminished than yours and mine. Think about it. We have medicine. We have antibiotics. We have doctors. We have surgery. We have stitches. We have casts. We have dentists. We have eyeglasses. We have hearing aids. We have so many things that can help us and our physical ailments. No such aids existed in the time of Christ. People often died from the common cold. People often died from influenza. People often died from a simple cut that became infected. Life was fragile and they knew it. For you and me, life is fragile and we ignore it. To have a sickness or disease during the time of Christ, to have a handicap, was to have little hope and little joy for relief. So think about it. In order to convince and prove that Jesus was indeed God in the flesh and that the king of the universe resided for a few years on the earth, the Lord regularly showed that he could, think about this, create physical circumstance, the physical circumstances and experience of heaven in short, brief snippets here on earth. In heaven, everything will be, right, be made right and new and whole and healthy and perfect. And in his healing miracles, Jesus demonstrated that he was indeed able to make the sick well, the diseased healthy, the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. And that was a foretaste of glory divine. It was a preview. It was a trailer for heaven. This was proof, these miracles that Jesus did in his life and preview that Jesus is the king and he would set all things one day right in his coming kingdom. In order to understand this narrative, by the way, we need to look at the conclusion and then work backwards. So sometimes in math, you go, remember, you, uh, well, at least I did this when I was in math. If you have the answers in the back, I will go see what the answer is and then come and do the problem. You didn't do that anyway. Um, <laughs> look at verse 37 again. He's gonna deal with this deaf mute. 
The crowd was utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. The phrase, he has done all things well, is an amazing phrase in the Greek language. It is explosive. It's pregnant with meaning. It's so much bigger than he has done all things well. Good job, Jesus. It's bigger than that. It's an interesting construction in the original language that marks Jesus' actions in two different ways. Everything, first of all, is comprehensive. Everything Jesus does is well or excellent. The word for well there means excellent beyond any comparison. So everything, that's the comprehensive nature. And then it's, it's also unparalleled. It's, it's superlative. He has done all things well. Well is what he does when he does anything and all things. Comprehensive, everything And also superlative. Nothing can supersede the life, the ministry, the words, the actions of Jesus. That was their conclusion. Jesus' works were comprehensively and superlatively superior to anyone they had ever seen and certainly to anyone who's ever lived. So in this account... You and I are escorted into this scene and you're seated in the front row. You get to go into a private meeting with Jesus and witness something. I mean, Mark, God's grace through Mark is so kind. Remember, Mark would have gotten his his data from who? Peter. This is no doubt a scene where Jesus takes this man aside And Peter must have been an eyewitness because we know what he heard, we know what he did, and we know what he said. Let's just flow through this. This is a display of divine excellence, all things well. And we'll discover together three unexpected scenes. They are all surprises. Unexpected scenes in a display of divine excellence. When Mark says... They said he's done all things well. That's another way of saying he has done everything with unsurpassed excellence. Three unexpected scenes in a display of divine excellence. Number one, verses 31 and 32. An unanticipated occasion for his excellence. An unanticipated occasion for his excellence. Now, verse 31 is, um, this makes like Bible students geek out a little bit. This is one of those things that's easy to read over and not really drill down and find out what's there. It is really fascinating. Get out a map if you can. In fact, you're welcome right now to turn to the back of your Bible and look at the life of Jesus. You'll have one of those maps because this is interesting. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre. Stop right there. He left from the uh, western shore of Galilee. He went north and west up to Tyre, which is on the sea, into Gentile territory. He couldn't go any further into Gentile territory or he would have gone swimming in the Mediterranean. And he wants to end up on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So if, if you could look up here for a moment, Jesus has gone, if this is the Sea of Galilee, he has gone up to the sea, Mediterranean Sea, And he wants to go on the other side of the lake. And he goes 20 miles north to Sidon to go around to the opposite side of the lake. 
If I can make an extreme, not just, this is not to scale, but an extreme kind of a visual for you. This would like being in Los Angeles and wanting to go to Phoenix and in order to go to Phoenix, going to San Francisco and then around to Phoenix. I read two liberal scholars this week who said, this is clear evidence that the editor who put the book of Mark together had no clue about his geography. This is an obvious error in the writing of the gospel of Mark. And I, I literally laughed out loud. Why did he go that circumlocuous route? Why did he go north before he went south and east? Why? Well, the text doesn't tell us explicitly. Mark doesn't tell us. But we do know over the last three chapters that Jesus keeps trying to get alone. He keeps trying to get away with his disciples. He wants to teach them. And no doubt he wants to rest. He is awakened in the morning by pounding on the doors where he's staying. The people want to have him heal and cast out demons. He is kept up into the night talking and teaching If you read the progression in the Gospels, you find out that Jesus keeps praying and it seems like he gets up earlier and earlier and earlier to be alone with the Lord. I think we, we realize that Jesus is seeking time alone with his disciples away from the crowd. So yes, he's going to end up over on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, but, but he goes deeper and further north into Gentile territory. Hopefully where he might not be known to spend time where, with his disciples. We don't know what he did in Sidon. In fact, you'll be interested to know that this account is only recorded in Mark. We don't know exactly why he went north to go south. We can guess, but we certainly don't think that Mark was an editor or Mark was clueless. Every word of God, every single word of God is there by divine intention. So he gets down, he goes north and then goes south and, and, and east on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And very interestingly, he's recognized. They brought to him... One who was deaf and spoke with him and spoke with difficulty, and they implored Jesus to lay his hand on him. Now, I want you to do a little, little memory work here. How did these folks in the Gentile territory know about Jesus? He's dropped down the, the western, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee toward the south end in the exact region where he had cast the demons, the legion of demons out of the Gerasene demoniac. And we find out that that demoniac went back and evangelized and told everyone what Jesus had done. Can you imagine? He's coming into the area. People are running ahead of him. The miracle worker from Nazareth is coming back to the capitalists. If you knew that someone was coming to your area who could heal 
any disease, cast out any demon, make the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak. And you knew someone who is deaf and mute, what would you do? Exactly what these folks in verse 32 do. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. Matthew 15 describes this scene like this. Jesus went along the Sea of Galilee, having gone up on the mountain. He was sitting there and a large crowd came to him, bringing with them those who were lame and crippled and blind and mute with many others. And they laid them down at his feet and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. That's significant. Gentiles glorified the God of Israel. You know, one of the things you see throughout Mark, remember Mark is writing to a predominantly Gentile audience, Greek-speaking audience. We'll see that he has to translate an Aramaic word in just a moment. And for these people in a Gentile area to glorify the God of Israel, not just a God, not just any God, they recognize salvation coming from Israel. In fact, folks, they recognized the Messiahship of Jesus before the Jews did. Out of all of that crowd that come to be healed with Jesus, that Matthew discusses, the episode of this one deaf man is only recorded in Mark, which tells us that the Holy Spirit lodged it in Peter's mind. Just a little structural comment here, because we'll come back to this in two sermons. Interestingly, Jesus heals a deaf man here with his spit, with his saliva. Then comes the account of another mass miracle feeding in Chapter 8, verses 1 to 21. And then at the other side of that is a, 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 another piece of the sandwich in 8, 22 to 26, which Jesus, in which Jesus heals a blind man with his saliva. Now, we've talked about Mark and sandwiches, where Mark sandwiches things between. This is a, an incredible Mark and sandwich. And the pieces of bread is Jesus' saliva. And it really is. We'll talk more about that in, in two weeks, but let's talk about this account this morning. Someone in the crowd, some of the crowd, looks like friends, there's a multitude. They bring a man to Jesus. This man cannot hear. But a closer look at his deafness reveals something about his deafness. It affected his speech. This is important, a really important detail because we are told he could speak, but he had a serious speech impediment. Now what that informs us is that he had not been born deaf. If so, he would not have learned how to speak language. He would not have had a concept of language, only signs and signals and, and rudimentary sign language. Apparently he had become deaf after he had learned to speak, it could have been a disease, it could have been an injury, but it changed his ability to speak correctly. He knew the language, he just didn't speak it clearly because he had no auditory feedback. 
By the way, Mark uses a very rare Greek word to describe this man's speech defect that points back to Isaiah 35, 6, which prophesies that God will one day cause the tongue of the mute to shout for joy. We'll come back to that passage in a minute. This will be a connection that is made by Mark in verse 37, that this happens among people outside of Israel, among the Gentiles. This progression is is happening in the life and ministry of Jesus. Mark is so careful to mark this highlight, this progression. It is unthinkably tragic to watch the Jewish leaders of Israel, the common folks of Israel, witness the same miracles and not glorify God. Even accusing him in Mark chapter three, remember, of operating by Satan's power. Yet here in the Gentile region of the Decapolis, Jesus is recognized as the one who operates by the power of God and they glorify the God of Israel. Wow. So it's an unanticipated occasion for his excellence. He, this is not home court. He is in Gentile territory doing the same miracles he did to the promised people of Israel. There's a second unexpected scene in this display of divine excellence, an astonishing demonstration, an astonishing, that's the word Mark uses, an astonishing, overwhelming display or just demonstration of his excellence. Verse 33. This man comes up to Jesus. He's brought by his friends. He cannot speak clearly. He cannot hear anything. And Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself. And it seems that Peter, at least, is there to witness this. It's where we get the details of this. I hate being overly personal in in sermons. I really don't want to be the issue or the object. But as most of you know, um, back in um, 2002, I, I lost my hearing in my right ear. I had some brain surgery that took out the, cut the nerve, the, the uh, hearing nerve on my right side. I'm completely deaf on my right side. And um, God has been kind to me and so gracious to allow me to kind of move through life. And it really helps when you want to go to sleep at night. You just put your good ear in the pillow. And if you want to rob my house, just make sure that I'm the only one there and I'll never hear you. But if I can just share with you the unbelievable frustration of being only half deaf and missing so much of life. I have to decide where I'm gonna sit in a room. I have to decide if there's enough ambient noise that I can't use hearing aids. It's my, my, almost every part of my public existence is arranged around orienting myself to cover for my deaf side. But that's easy compared to this man. Psychologists and psychiatrists tell us it's far more traumatic to lose your hearing than it is your sight. You can hear, take in more by hearing sometimes than you even can by by seeing. This man is in a bad way. I just imagine how they would have communicated to him about Jesus if he knew about him before. I mean, did they, did they give some hand motions about he can, 
he can fix you? Did they draw it in the, in the sand? Did they write it down? Perhaps he was able to, to read. We, we don't know. But he walks into this crowd, not hearing anything, the murmuring, the, the people clamoring, the people elbowing each other to get to Jesus. He can't hear anything except his friends escorting him to the Lord, asking him, would you please touch him? Lay your hands on him. That was interesting. They asked for a physical contact. And in the middle of all that, Matthew, Luke, John, don't record this. Mark says, he takes this man and he pulls him aside by himself. The by himself is the man by himself. He obviously wasn't by himself. Jesus wasn't, that wasn't himself there. That was because Peter was there. And he put his fingers in his ears. Stop right there. What's that about? I mean, is that kind of invading your space? He was obviously close enough to take his fingers and put them in his ears. Why? Well, we're left, again, Mark doesn't tell us to speculate, but I think he was foreshadowing to the man what he was about to do. Instead of going, he went, he identified the source of the problem. And then, this is a tough one on the flannel board. He touched his tongue with saliva. Oh, I wish you knew Greek. He spit for the purpose of putting it in the guy's mouth. This text is not explicit, but it's not difficult to imagine the account from this deaf man's perspective. He can see this all happening. He can't hear anything. Everything because he can't hear has to be visual. Jesus is very visual with him. He gets along with this Nazarene healer, taking everything in by sight. His world is silent, it's muffled. The sound of 10,000 seashells is in his ears. The deafening ocean is what a deaf person hears. And then Jesus does something odd and unexpected, touches his ears, and in two steps, touches his ears. Then he puts his fingers, uh, spits in his hand and touches the man's tongue. And remember, the man is watching, and we have no commentary here, and if he would have said something, it would not have been intelligible. We can understand what Jesus is communicating about deafness by touching his ears and by his muteness by touching his tongue. But can we just ask the obvious question? Couldn't Jesus have done this without spitting? The answer to that is obviously yes, we just saw him heal a girl from demon possession without being in her presence. He surely could have healed this man without doing this. What is this about? I think Jesus is showing him in a visual way, visual way I am about to make your tongue alive with my very life. Verse 34, and looking up to heaven, that's a euphemism for praying. 
with a deep sigh. This is just really devotional, but what is this about looking up to heaven with a deep sigh? It literally means to take a deep breath and to exhale. Do you ever find, I do, maybe you do, do you ever find in a moment of prayer, you often begin by going, just a deep breath, it's just a way of focusing. Peter noticed that, told it to Mark. He takes a deep breath, he sighs and he prays. Then he speaks to a man who cannot hear him. He said to him, Ephatha, that's an Aramaic word. The Greeks to whom Mark was writing would have not had any clue what that word meant. So Mark translates it for them, which is translated, it means be open. Literally, unloose. Looking up to heaven, deep sigh in prayer, looks to the man and says, be opened. Oh, there's a world of a, of a conversation we're gonna have with this man between verse 34 and 35. Verse 35, and his ears were opened. He heard, and the impediment of his tongue was removed. And he began to speak, and he began to speak plainly, understandably, with no impediment. You ever had a television that was turned on, a computer that was turned on, a, a device that was turned on, but it was on mute? You're trying to figure out what's wrong with it, and, and finally you realize the, the mute button is on, and you turn the volume up, and, and nothing happens, and then, oh, the mute button is on, and you push mute, and an explosion of sound hits you. That's this scene. I just imagine this guy's joy, his world opened. He heard. And then we find out something. He begins talking to Jesus. How do we know that? Because it says he began speaking plainly. What do you think he said? Is that hard to imagine? Do the words thank you come to mind? Do the words, oh my, come to mind? Do the words, I can hear you, come to mind? And when he said this, he heard himself say it perfectly. What a savior. What a God in flesh. Instant correction of the speech. Instant hearing. Oh, I want to know what he said. Whatever he said, it was plain. It was understandable. But I imagine thank you was there. William Lane, the excellent, in his excellent commentary on Mark says, the healing did not consist in the fact that the man spoke, but that he spoke without defect 
His command of language confirms that he had not been deaf, born deaf and dumb. His normal speech formed the surprising contrast. His normal speech formed a surprising contrast to his former stammering. No speech pathologist. He instantly spoke perfectly. You know what? Jesus cares for people who we shouldn't expect that he would care about. The Gentiles have become the enemies of the Jews. They become the derision of the Jews. They have become the persecutors of the Jews. And just watch in the next 70 years to see how the Gentiles will even persecute the Jews further. Jesus cared for a Gentile who needed care. Can you just grab the fact that Jesus cares for those who need care? He knows, he understands, he cares about your physical ailments and he may not come and touch a tongue or put his fingers in your ears or as we'll see in two weeks, cause your eyes to see in this life. But remember, this is a foretaste and preview and a trailer for the king in his kingdom I think about heaven and I think about me. It's probably selfish, but you probably do too. I want to hear. First of all, I want to hear so badly. I don't want to ignore people on my right side and make them think I'm rude. I want to hear. I want to hear the beautiful music of heaven. I, I'm sad that I can't hear the, the full spectrum of what Aaron does for us each Sunday. I want to sing really well too. I like to be tall. or for all of you to be short. <laughs> These healings, they just bless us by remembering that we are one day going to be free from everything that perplexes us and that persecutes us and that troubles us, that dogs us in this world. If you know Christ, that's your hope. But can I just pause for a minute. If you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior and believe that he is the only way for your sins to be forgiven, that he is the only pathway to God, that he has reached out in condescending love to anyone who would believe and said, have faith in what I've done for you and I will give you eternity with all the joys of heaven and all the remission of sins and all the, the erasure of everything that tortures you and bothers you in this life, you can have that. You can have that today by believing in this miracle worker who is a sinless lamb who died for the sins of those who believe and rose from the dead and offers us the hope of all of our troubles being gone one day in heaven for all eternity. What kind of fool would say no to that? If you don't know the Savior today, you have come to the right place, hearing the right passage on a good day. And there will be people all around you. You can just look to them and say, can you help me understand this a little more? Or our prayer room will be open and you can talk to someone as well. Please don't leave the building. Please, I'm begging you, don't leave the building without having your soul anchored in this kind of hope for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of a perfect life forevermore in heaven. You can have that today. 
Astonishing demonstration of his excellence. Peter saw it. Peter heard it. And that brings us to number three, a surprising response to his excellence. A surprising response to his excellence. We're gonna go back and revisit something that we've already seen in the book of Mark and in the life of Christ. A surprising response to his excellence. Verse 36. And he gave them orders. We don't know if the them is Peter and the guy and anyone else who would have been with him or the crowd. Seems to be this command to have leaked out to the crowd as we'll see in a moment. He gave them orders (laughs) not to tell anyone. Now, if you don't recognize sometimes some divine irony and a smidgen of humor, you need to read a little more carefully. You just want to say, Jesus or Mark, really? Is this guy just supposed to hide the fact that he, he, he can hear and hide the fact that he can speak well? What if someone drops a book behind him or drops a vase behind him and he's startled? Is he supposed to pretend like he didn't hear it? Don't tell anyone. And it seemed to be not just this situation, but all of the miracles that were surrounding that Matthew recorded because he says, the more he ordered them, it seemed to have happened more than once, don't tell anyone, the more widely they continue to proclaim it. This in the gospels and in the book of Mark is what theologians call the silence motif in the life of Christ. And for us studying Mark, it's the silence motif Again, four times after he performs miracles, Jesus commands the people to say nothing about it, to be silent. He said that of the leper in 144. He said that of raising the dead girl, Jairus' daughter in in, uh, 543, the healing of this deaf mute here in 736. And he'll say it again at the end of this sandwich in Mark 8, 26, when he heals the blind man. By the way, two times in 8.30 and in 9.9, the disciples are commanded to be silent about what he's done. Add to that that Jesus two times withdraws from the crowds to escape detection. He doesn't want to be seen and known for what he is and what he can do. What is this about? What? Why is he telling them don't tell anybody? Look at Mark chapter 9. We are, we are so fast getting to the place where Mark is gonna usher us to the cross. He's gonna spend time in the Decapolis. He's gonna go back north to Caesarea uh, Philippi, have the great confession of the Messiahship, spend time with them, do the transfiguration where he shows them his glory and then be on a death march to Jerusalem directly south. After the transfiguration, you remember this, we'll study this in detail soon. He takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. He peels back his flesh. He shows them his glory. They were coming down from the mountain, verse nine. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen. There it is again. And you're you're saying, oh dear, roll your eyes, big yawn. Why is he doing this again? He tells us why here. Until, until the son of man rose from the dead. What's the point? You one day should record this. You one day should write about this. You one day should tell about this. You one day should spread the news about this. But not until the Son of Man rises from the dead. Why? Because that was not the gospel. 
He hadn't died for sins and risen from the grave. That's the good news. That's the message. That's the climax of the gospel. To say anything about Jesus in terms of good news without those elements was incomplete. That's why he's saying, just shh. It's not gonna be long and you'll be able to tell everybody, but until then, know that this is not the message. Oh my, our, our friends in the, in the health and wealth movement, they think that's the message. It's not the message. That's the hope of heaven for which we've seen previews, but it's not the message. Often, Jesus' message is exactly the opposite. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's no surprise, Peter says, when people come to cause you harm. Don't tell anyone. And we know from what Mark says in 9, there may have been some, some color commentary here. Listen, this is... This is not why I came. This is to let you know who I am, but you're gonna find out when I go to Jerusalem and die for sins and rise from the grave, that's why I came. You can hardly blame them for spreading the news. Can you? I think of Jairus' daughter. His daughter was dead. She rises from the dead and he's not supposed to share that at dinner the next night with somebody. But the point was that wasn't the complete message. Now we come to the climax of this miracle, the response, verse 37. They were astonished. In the common vernacular, that was they were blown away. They were waylaid. They were overwhelmed. They were speechless. They had nothing to even participate in that would respond to what they had seen. And their conclusion, Gentile audience hadn't grown up with the oracles of God, the temple worship, hadn't grown up in the synagogue with lots of teaching. They concluded by hearing and seeing Jesus this. He has done all things, stop right there, not just this miracle, but his teaching, his miracles, his casting out demons, his interaction with the poor, his interaction with the needy, his confrontation of the scribes and Pharisees who will dog him even in the Decapolis in coming chapters. Their conclusion, he does everything without equal. Well, excellently, comprehensively, everything he does well and superlatively, superlatively, what he does is better than anyone else could possibly offer. We sing it sometimes. They recognized Jesus was amazing and by God's good grace and their careful observation, they were what? Amazed. He's done all things well. He's done everything excellently. Then Mark adds this. I'm not sure they concluded this. These are Gentiles who would not have been regularly reading the prophet Isaiah, but Mark knew Isaiah well. So he, he, he says, he makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. It's probably a, 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 something that the disciples had, had private little discipleship lessons with the other people about and said, you need to understand this is connected to Isaiah. Isaiah 35 verse five. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a, leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For the waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. In other words, he will make all things new. Streams in the Arabah is the desert. This is talking about that already and not yet dimension of God's kingdom. We're participating in part of it now. It will be fully realized in the future 
where the king will physically rule and all things will be physically made new and right. Eventually there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. Every tear wiped away. And Mark highlights the point that the conclusion is this is what Isaiah said would happen. And it's happening. Think about the creation account. Repeated seven times in the creation count, Genesis 1-4, 1-10, 1-12, 1-18, 131, Seven times God does something in the creative order and says, he saw that it was what? Good. He saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. He looked at what he had done and saw that it was good. <laughs> Friends, here, a group of Gentiles in Gentile area saw what Jesus had done and made the same conclusion. Everything he does is good. It's excellent. I think that's one of the most important takeaways for us. Your God does all things with excellence. And when we don't experience the the visceral experience of that excellence, it reminds us that this is not the end and not the world that lasts forever, but there is one day a kingdom coming with a king who will make everyone with any infirmity like this deaf mute. Psalmist said, you are good and you do good. Psalm 119, verse 68. Romans eight twenty eight. we know that God causes two words. What are they? God causes, what are they? All things to work together for good. But then they're back to salvation, those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I think most of you who've been here for any amount of time know that I have some favorite dead guys, some favorite theologians. All my favorite theologians are in heaven right now, I think. J.C. Ryle commenting on this. I read this and it was one of those moments I just read it and pushed back from the chair and said, wow, wow, what a reflection. Listen to what J.C. Ross says. Let us remember as we look forward to the days yet to come. We know not what they may be. They may be bright or dark, many or few, but we do know that we are in the hands of him who does all things well. He will not err in any of his dealings with us. He will take away and give. He will afflict and bereave. He will move and he will settle with perfect wisdom at the right time and in the right way. The great shepherd of the sheep makes no mistakes. He leads every lamb of his flock by the right way to the city of habitation. We shall never see the full beauty of these words till resurrection morning. We shall then look back over our lives and know the meaning of everything that happened from first to last. We shall remember all the way by which we were led and confess that all that was done was well done. The why and the wherefore, the causes and the reasons of everything which now perplexes us will be clear and plain as the as sun at the noonday. We shall wonder at our own past blindness 
and marvel that we could have ever doubted our Lord's love. Now we see through a glass darkly, quoting 1 Corinthians 13, but then we will see face to face. Now we see in part, but then we will know even as we are known. I hope as we're studying Mark and you see the excellencies of Jesus, that it's not just another children's story. This is a real man and a real preview of a real heaven with a real king and a real kingdom with forgiveness abounding in all our troubles in the past, which we will then interpret as God using for our good because he does all things well.